0: Writing where violence is only referenced, not described. Writing where violence is only referenced, not described. Writing where violence is
1: only...
0: One is never safe. One is never safe. Ambush. A violent disruption of image or language. Spatter. Spatter. Violence is ornament, embellishment. Gush, exaggerated cartoonish violence. Spurt, sustained descriptions of violence. Slap, stylistically callous violence. Forensic, violence depicted with logistical rigor. Crop, writing where violence is only referenced, not described, the more Categories I created, the more I saw myself manufacturing metaphors for metaphors. The the more categories that I created, the more I saw myself manufacturing metaphors for metaphors. The more categories I created, the more I saw myself manufacturing metaphors for metaphors. The more categories I created, the more I saw myself manufacturing metaphors for metaphors. And I don't know which I prefer.
2: Hello, and welcome to episode 99 of Commonplace. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. You were just listening to an excerpt of poet-performer-librettist Douglas Kearney performing with musician Val Genti on November 9th, 2021, at the Ace Hotel, Brooklyn. I recorded the conversation you're about to hear with Douglas Kearney in person in his hotel room just a few hours before that performance. Listener, this conversation messed me up. In some painful and necessary and beautiful ways. Steeping myself in Douglas's books, in his lectures and sound work, talking to him in my mind for weeks, and then the conversation itself. The energy in the room, the feeling of falling into a thrall, of being present with a person in person with a gorgeously atypical mind that ranged from the stratospherically metaphysical to the microscopically specific in a rhythm that felt so familiar, almost familial to the way my own weird brain works, something broke open for me, a realization about my long marriage, about what I care most about in writing, about performativity, about whiteness, about self, about other, about love. Douglas and I talked for well over two hours, but it felt like we were just getting started when I left his room to give him time to prepare for the performance. I tried sitting downstairs in the lobby, but was too keyed up. I walked around Brooklyn for an hour, not quite knowing how to settle down. When Commonplace producer V. Connady arrived and asked how the recording had gone, I kept telling them, this is going to be the best, my favorite, the best, just the easiest, the best, there's something, Commonplace episode ever. I could barely describe why. I felt like I'd used up all my language. I felt altered a bit out of my mind or too deeply in it soon after that v and i entered the performance space i saw several current and former students and poets i hadn't seen for a long time v and i sat masked in a room full of vaccinated people for our first public reading since covid haitian afrofuturist sound chemist val genti played various electronic instruments And ASL interpreter Billy Sanders signed. Douglas spoke and moved and sang and read and shouted and lay down on the floor and read from notes and threw the notes down, and it was awesome. Loud and quiet, painful, soothing, in and out of language. And as I sat there, I wanted to start our commonplace conversation all over again from the beginning. A few days later, I tried to listen to the audio of our conversation, but I kept needing to stop each time. Something was too intense there, and I found myself turning away, my mind wandering. I asked V to work on the audio, and over the course of a few months, we passed the audio back and forth. I needed to listen, process, get messed up, get unmessed up, and re-messed up over and over again. During these four months, I got my COVID booster, prepared for the Camille Dungy episode, fell into a deep and terrifying depression, turned 50, upped the dosage of my antidepressant, went on hormone replacement therapy for perimenopausal symptoms, surfaced, thank goodness, and fell in love, all while listening to and thinking about this conversation. I'll explain more, but first, some information. Douglas Kearney is the author of seven books, most recently, Show, published by Wave Books in 2021. Show was a National Book Award finalist, a Penn Volkner Award finalist, a Kingsley Tufts Award finalist, and a Minnesota Book Award finalist. Kearney's other books include Buck Studies, Mess and Mess And, Patter, and The Black Automaton. Some of his other creations include the 2021 LP, Fodder, featuring Kearney and Valgenti, the collection of libretti, Someone Took They Tongues, that M. Norbesi Philip calls a seismic polyphonic mashup that disturbs the tongue, and four staged operas, most recently, Sweet Land. Born in Brooklyn, raised in Altadena, California, Kearney is a Howard University and Cal Arts alum and currently teaches creative writing at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. I was first turned on to Douglas Kearney's work by Ariel Greenberg's 2012 column in the American Poetry Review about innovative newer African-American poets. Greenberg writes, the Black Automaton by Douglas Kearney reminds me that we need a new, less whimsical term for that poetic technique known as wordplay, because Kearney, like Thomas Sayers Ellis and Ronaldo Wilson, uses puns and carefully spun internal rhyme in the service of serious political critique. In this conversation— Douglas and I talk about wordplay, performative, typography, performativity, waste, purity, insight porn, epiphanies, relationship, ADD, and so much more. The conversation centers around the process of writing and performing a series of lectures as part of the Bagley Wright Lecture Series. The Bagley Wright Lecture Series on Poetry is a nonprofit that supports contemporary poets as they explore in depth their own thinking on poetry and poetics and give a series of lectures resulting from these investigations. Lectures are delivered publicly in partnership with institutions and organizations nationwide. Charlie Wright, publisher of Wave Books, established the Bagley-Wright Lectureship Series in memory of his late father, the businessman and philanthropist Bagley-Wright. I myself had the life-changing experience of being a Bagley-Wright lecturer. My lectures, The Poetics of Wrongness, will come out early next year. And I've been wanting for so long to speak to Douglas about his work, especially about his experiences as a Bagley Wright lecturer. Commonplace producer V did a gorgeous job editing this episode. In addition to finding a shape for Douglas and my circumlocutions, they also selected, and you'll hear these in the conversation excerpts from Hashtag Werewolf Goals, performed on Zoom and hosted by Washington University in St. Louis, and I Killed, I Died, Banter, Self-Destruction, and the Poetry Reading, performed on Zoom and hosted by Cave Canem. The nature of these lectures is that they changed with each performance, but you can find more audio excerpts and more information about Douglas's lectures at bagleywrightlectures.org slash Douglas Kearney. And you can hear more about the series on Bagley Wright Lecture Series' own podcast, which is available on most platforms. Douglas's book, Optic Subwolf, which contains written versions of all the lectures we discuss and more, will be published later this year by Wave Books. I'm thrilled to announce that all Commonplace patrons will get access to the full Zoom recording of hashtag Werewolf Goals, as well as a 30-second video highlighting Douglas Kearney's process for creating visual poems, which he calls performative typography, and a PDF including several drafts of one of these poems. It's a great time to become a Commonplace patron. For this episode, some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive a copy of one of the following books, all by Douglas Kearney. Patter and Fear Some, both courtesy of Red Hen Press. Show, courtesy of Wave Books. Mess and Mess And, courtesy of Noemi Press. Buck Studies and The Black Automaton, both courtesy of Fence Books. In celebration of this episode and the Bagley-Wright Lecture Series, we are so grateful to WAVE Books for supporting us with this excellent promotion. The next 10 people to become a Commonplace member at the level of $20 or more will receive a bundle of the Bagley-Wright Lecture books published to date. If you're already a Commonplace patron, you can raise your level of support to $20 or more, and you'll also be eligible to receive this awesome set of books by Joshua Beckman, Dottie Lasky, Terrence Hayes, and Cedar Saigo. Commonplace, as you know, has no ads, corporate sponsors, or institutional support. It is made possible by the support of our patrons. To find out how to become a Commonplace patron or member of the Commonplace Book Club, please go to commonpodcast.com. Or patreon.com slash commonplace podcast. If you'd like to make a larger one-time donation, or if you'd like to talk to us about helping to make Commonplace financially sustainable, please email us at rachel at commonpodcast.com. For this episode, Commonplace's charitable partner will donate $250 to the African American Policy Forums and the Center for Intersectionality and Social Policy Studies Say Her Name Campaign, which was chosen by Douglas. From the website, launched in December 2014, the Say Her Name Campaign brings awareness to the often invisible names and stories of Black women and girls who have been victimized by racist police violence and provide support to their families. Commonplace's next episode will be our 100th. And of course, we're doing something a little wacky. We'll be sharing a very intimate conversation I recorded with my close friend and former Commonplace social media director, Doreen Wong, when she visited me in my new home in Washington Heights last November. We'll also be sharing some favorite audio clips from older episodes, and I'll be talking to a few longtime listeners and patrons. If you have a favorite Commonplace moment or something you'd like to share for our 100th episode celebration, please feel free to record an audio message and email it to us or reach out via Google Voice or SpeakPipe, both of which you can find on our website. Future episodes will include poet Prageeta Sharma, choreographer Liz Lerman, and episodes about literary labor and translation, and much more. But now, here is Douglas Kearney. I Have spent so much time with you. Like, (laughs) I mean, and and more really than than other guests that I've had on Commonplace because I have listened to your lectures live, quote unquote. I I some of most of them virtual. Um, But then I've re-listened to them and I'm teaching your book. I'm teaching your lectures. uh, You're coming to my class tomorrow. Yeah, it's just, it's it's very strange and wonderful to be sitting in a room with you after listening to your voice and thinking about embodiment, Mm -hmm. virtuality, performance, poetry on the page, connection, all of these things, uh, and, and to and feel like I was in conversation with you, but actually it w- it, it was and wasn't one-sided.
0: Right, 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 right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, in any case, here we are, <laughs> two living human beings. Exactly. <sighs> <sighs> I, I would like to start... By asking you if you're willing to sort of tell the story about the lectures, not so much the content first, but I'm wondering like where you were in your life, in your career, in your in your personal life, and when you got asked to do the lectures, absolutely. Um, Like what was going on then for you? And maybe we could sort of start there.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's perfect. Awesome. Thank you. So I got the letter from Bagley Wright in 2018. And we had just moved Mm. from Santa Clarita, which is like 35 miles north of downtown L.A. um, to Minnesota. But I got this letter and there were so many confluences at that moment. Like this was the first time in my professional career as a teacher that I had to think in terms of tenure and mm. promotion and advancement. Calarts didn't do those things, but it came at this moment where I thought what I was going to be doing essentially was, I don't want to say rebooting or resetting, but, but thinking about the intersection of my life as a teacher and as a writer in mm-hmm. a different way
1: mm-hmm.
0: like like there was there was a time where when i took the job at the u and i was anticipating going i was like wow okay so maybe it'll be interesting to really focus on poetry for a while
1: you know mm-hmm. I'm just,
0: just gonna do poetry i'm leaving this interdisciplinary uh, institute at cal arts and i'm gonna go to this other place that has you know sort of robust departments and all that and i was like i, I was interested in what it would feel like to kind of submerge into poetry. Um, even as I was trying to really understand how to d- write a lecture without feeling like I was going to be cosplaying as, you know, a lecturer I'd heard on a, <laughs> on, on a podcast or pe- attended.
2: And, and so you, you did, did you consider yourself – primarily a poet at that moment or that point or did you consider yourself an interdisciplinary artist because you'd published um uh books of poetry and then you'd done all this other work right like Mm -hmm. operettas and um so and and the other sort of related question is did you think or do you think that part of why you were asked was because they wanted you to talk about your interdisciplinary sort of approach to poetry.
0: So to all those questions, which are great questions, um, I consider myself primarily a poet. I think it's more interesting for me and productive for me to think about making things from, a the angle that I feel like poetry gives me, right? And I tend to immerse myself in something for a while. So it's not so much that it's like programmatic; like I, you know, I don't have a manifesto about it, but but really thinking about you know what poetry and the kinds of associative uh, connections, the kind of patterns, the types of attention that I pay. Uh, To the world and to the material. Um, When I'm thinking about it as a poet, it feels more um, like there's more I can I can I can I can work with. I, I feel it's it's and it feels like the the angle that is the most fulfilling. So I think of myself as a poet, but I think of myself as a poet who has had the the incredible opportunity to not only push other creative skills that I have like to to like extend them into places I never thought they'd go but to collaborate with so many other artists so yeah I think of myself as a poet but something that any of my students will probably tell you is I have a real problem with the idea of purity Uh like I'm like I'm like purity that's like if you kind of go to the heart of most like human cruelty to groups of other humans it's because there was a desire or demand or an extraction for a certain kind of purity. And I'm like, nah, nah, mm-hmm. nah, that's, that's, that's never, that never goes to the right place, especially if you're, if you're pressing it onto other people. Um, and so, you know, poet, but not pure poet, but to the other, to, to the, to the last part of the question, the, when Bagley Wright, asked me to do the lectures, and, I, and, I, and this is standard, is they wanted me to write about you know, what was interesting to me, mm-hmm. like what, what impacted my process and my practice. And the biggest struggle I had over the time uh, between the letter and when I gave my first one um, was how much I wanted to take that as like a dare – or how much I wanted to be contrary to it like and then just my own general desire to um you know to to appear smart like like how much time was i going to spend learning things that i would retroactively say oh and this is a part of my poetics mm-hmm. like this is i think about this all the time like please ignore the the brand new copy of that book <laughs> on my nightstand no i've been thinking about this since the beginning and that to me was sort of like the hardest um, thing to do was to not only see see that as permission, but to almost be like, no, don't like not don't learn other things. But but if you learn something else, make sure you are accounting for that as a thing you've learned, but not a thing that you were walking around with. Um, had you written show? No. So this is funny. Yeah. All right. So this, this is going to it's actually not going to jump us up that far into the timeline. Okay. It's going to jump us up to December of 2018. So I had been planning to do a manuscript called Actors, Not Real People. Like that had been the project that was sort of in the back of my mind since 2016. And uh, the woman who married me, her name is Nicole, and I'll just say Nicole the rest of the, 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 the conversation uh, – at about the year 2016 said, stop, like for a few years, you are not allowed to make a new book. You're not mm. allowed to work in that way. Because 2012 to 2016 had been pretty, a pretty dense time for me. Mm-hmm. Um, like four books came out in that time. And and all of those books were books that I also designed. So, so not only was I writing, but I was making them and trying to figure out, well, how, how different will each book be from the next, like, like visually. And so there's just kind of, again, sort of immersion that had lasted for several years. And some of those years um, were grappling with, you know, Nicole's miscarriage, um, becoming a, a new father. Like there was a lot of stuff mm-hmm. happening in that. So she was like, you need to take a break, stop. So I, I, I did kind of, like, I just had this sort of thing in the back of my mind. So it's December, 2018. So now it's time to start edging into what this manuscript is going to be. And and I realized very quickly and like with, with deep sadness that I was not interested in writing any more of the poems that were holding that manuscript together. Mm. I was not terribly interested in what the manuscript was asking me to do and what I had made from the manuscript. Um, And, and, in that moment, I was sort of like, oh, okay. Ugh. I don't have trouble saying, okay, that's done. It did what it was supposed to do for me. I don't, I don't have that problem. So I basically said, but here it is, 2018. Maybe I should see, is there anything else, right? Because as I was kind of going through the archives of poems, you know, I was finding things, oh, that could kind of fit the theme or whatever. So as I went back and sort of reworked, I realized that I had a manuscript for a, a, a manuscript called I Imagine I've Been Science Fiction Always. Mm. And I had like this this kind of, the, I had like the, the the core, I had the nut for that. And I was like, okay, great, great. That's 70% done. But I want to do another thing. Mm. And so I went through um, the work that I'd written recently and work going back, I think the, the oldest, the oldest two pieces in that book are from 2008. Uh-huh. So I went back and and kind of pulled those up and you know, began to feel like I had a book that I didn't expect, a sort of a sneak a sneaky book mm-hmm. that really kind of began to absorb my attention. But that's that 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 third attempted manuscript of December 2018 is what ended up becoming show.
2: Mm -hmm. How much overlap was there, if at all, between the pieces that were in actors, not real people, and then I imagine I've been science fiction always, and then show?
0: Virtually none. Wow. But the thing that I kind of want to amplify at this moment is, for anybody who's sort of familiar with my work, one thing you might see is, I work in series and sequences a lot. Book studies, I felt, had pushed that to a point where there, were, there was like no section I felt like I could just read a poem from mm-hmm. without doing a whole bunch of contextualization. Um, and that was going to carry over into Actors, Not Real People. It was going to carry over into, I imagine, I've been science fiction always. But the book that became show, one of the things that was striking to me about it was there really aren't many. I mean, there's like maybe one that has three
1: mm-hmm, parts,
0: mm-hmm. you know, and there's things that chime. But the feeling that you are moving through a, a mode that is supposed to be patterned and, and replicated, that book doesn't really do it. And that was one of the things that began exciting me about it. But it also, of course, meant, as I said, there wasn't much overlap. I had used banter as many do, a guard against the audience turning on me. I still wanted to kill and not die like a comic, and to a comic, to have an audience turn on you is when a joke makes them dislike you in a way you don't mean to mean. To turn on you suggests in comedy, betrayal. In poetry, however, it suggests a volta. In comedian Christopher Titus's 2017 special, Born with a Defect, right around 4557, he self-interrupts a characteristically twisted bit with what sounds like a bantered aside. I've gotten to a very slick, sick place with comedy. I've done this so long now. This is my seventh special. I want you guys to know something. So I, I want you guys to laugh, and I'm used to that. I've been doing that a long time. Now I've gotten to this weird place, like a guy who's had way too much sex, where I needed a little weird. So I'll write a joke where you guys go, ha, 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 uh, "Oh, Titus mimics a spectator's game laughter before abruptly pulling a look of their dawning dismay. Then." Titus is Titus again, doing a victory gesture that reads, I'm getting off. Note the disclosure of his joke writing process. Next, pausing for this aside creates an interstice that he fills with the banter's tricky meta-commentary. The crowd howls after his confession and pantomime and "born with a defect. I know, I know, he says, shuddering off the illicit pleasure, returning to the act. I have a problem. It's not good. He's killing them. The thing though, within the when the bit, within the bit started, when the audience groaned their dismay, he was laughing, the only one laughing at an awkward ass joke. And was that dying or did he want their buttoned silence? Thus killing. Or has no place with the funny I'm talking about. This messy funny too much mini. I'm about to talk about banter and self-destruction. My studies in banter and self-destruction are, however, accelerations of the latent negation implicit in banter at a poetry reading. Lecture. Banter facilitates a dialogic relation between the poet and the audience. Yet this is false. The poet speaks to the audience as auditor. Lecture. Rather than seeing this as the poet given essential power in the context of the reading, the triangular exchange structure described above posits the terms of power are administrated through Commerce lecture. Okay, what I'm saying is even though it looks like the poet is in power because the poet is the one with the mic, the option not to speak is actually the sign of power. The poet in characteristic US American readings is the object and consumable of the reading, the product/slash/service. Their utterance is a site to be judged by the audience, not a site that exacts power or generates law over the audience. The conventions of the poetry reading itself are the source of order. The audience's option to utter then becomes a mapping of their creasy critico, which I'm using to suggest judgment, decision, accusation, and criticality, engagement, and evaluation of the poet's compulsory utterance. This is an activity of judgment, anti-spiced as appreciation. Banter accommodates and expedites this creasy critical function by laying bare slash breaking down or stripping and taking apart the poem as a site of motivations and procedurals for the poet. Thus, the poet takes on the conflicting roles of witness slash criminal, debunker slash magician, craftsperson slash seer, critic slash artist as prolepsis, a preemptive defense against or accommodation for the audience's evaluation. These pairings are kept as or conditions by the short border between banter and poem. Now, the poet seems to say, I am a witness to the crime of the poem. Here's how it was done. This crime's called lecture, 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 lecture. Should this lecture be called I Call, I Killed, I Died, Banter, Self-Snitching, and the Poetry Reading? I've no side eye for confession. Besides what the listed pairs, witness-slash-criminal, debunker-slash-magician, craftsperson-slash-seer, critic-slash-artist, come to get at isn't snitching. They undo each other. They headed for self-destruction, the slash a typographic wound at an epistemological crime scene. What I'm here to report is that I've meant to excise that slash, not in my bio, my artist statements, but at my readings themselves. Recall the proffered structure. Banter, poem, banter, poem, banter, poem. Then the notion of volta, a turn marking a change. Here's the volta in my poetry reading praxis. I no longer put a slash between banter and poem. In fact, the reading has become a site in which I attempt to reproduce the associative space of poetic composition publicly. The results have been funny.
2: So incredible amongst all the things that you're saying right now, Um, and then ask you a question. Um, So I, I just, I love what you're saying about not feeling like anything you write is wasted, you know. Even if you don't publish it, or you know, it doesn't it doesn't end up being a product. I I, I found myself saying like, oh yeah, so therefore actors, not real people, and techniques of acting, and thinking about role and thinking about limited role. Ah, uh, so did that become the lecture? I killed. <laughs> I died. I bombed. I'm getting the order wrong. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um you know, oh, and, ah, you know, camera techniques and, you know, uh, oh, did that become hush? So I found myself wanting to, like, do this thing where I said, yes, but it wasn't wasted because you did publish it. And I thought, man, is that, like, just, like, my addiction to capitalism somehow? <laughs> you know, like, right. why can't I let
0: that be, mm. you know? Yeah, I mean, you, honestly, something about the way I think about waste absolutely aligns with what you just said, which is, and this is something I tell my students, and I do really believe this, that everything you write helps you write the next thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in a
0: really almost boring mechanical way, right, you're not wasting time. There's a, a, a conversation I had um, with some other poets. We, we were like having – dinner and at at the Minneapolis AWP. So there's a bunch of us. And I was like, writers need scales. Like musicians have scales. These kind of somatic exercises where, you know, you're doing these things. And I was like, athletes have pushups. Yeah. Right. Like there's not a point in a game of basketball where doing a pushup is like. The, you know, this is remember your training. <laughs> <Like> right. Finally, <laughs> the push up is going. to – No, but what it does is it like strengthens muscles that you will need to do a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. So I was kind of like sitting there, going around, going, "Huh, writers need scales. You know, we need this thing that we could just sort of sit down and we could do, and then people will, um, you know, you you'll feel like, oh, I, I did, I did the thing today, right? Um, and there was, like, some very reasonable pushback that I can't remember right now. <laughs> but but – but, and maybe and maybe I absorbed the pushback in this sort of thing of, like, um, just writing sentences.
1: Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. just
0: writing sentences. Not even sentences that are designed to be the actual seed of something else, which is oftentimes, like, this, this kind of double double talk, you know, double cross sort of thing that you can do with yourself. Like, oh, I'm just going to write these. But they're not going to be anything. And there's this little corner in your mind going like, but maybe it will. Right? Right? I feel like at one level, at the really mechanical level, it's true. Mm-hmm. And I try to tell my students um, often or when if I'm doing a Q&A and somebody asks, do you write every day? I say, most days I do write. But I don't think that's the question you're actually as- asking. I think you're asking, do you write a draft of a poem every day? Mm. And I think it's really important that we, um, you know, since since the concepts are sort of fungible, I think that it's, fu- that it's important that we kind of atomize certain things. Like, do you write? Yes, okay, that's one thing. Have you written a poem? That's another thing. Have you published a poem? That's another thing. All of these are distinct. When I think of the idea of wasting time, I recognize that the need to have a thing in order to facilitate other things is not abstract. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: It is not theoretical. So when I say no time is wasted, it is to take some of the tension out of what might be an institutionally determined, arbitrarily determined amount of time that it should take you to finish something
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and
0: to not see that as literally how much time it takes to finish something because all of those things, I think can sometimes be negatively generative, emotionally, uh, psychically, aesthetically unsustainable because at that point it is an extractive resource and you always will run out. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And to also make it so that when people are writing What they're writing about, they feel okay writing about this thing. And so those are some of the ways I think about it. My interests, my sort of sustained tropes, performance, visuality, visual, like those are my interests. I'll break out and branch out and find some new things. But I think you observe absolutely correctly. The time that I spent thinking about actors, real people, specifically techniques of acting, feeds into this lifelong interest in performance that solved certain, that, that answered certain kinds of questions or created new questions. And I killed, I died. Um, banter, self-destruction in the poetry reading. But I have, but I see that in some ways, not necessarily important ways, but I see that in sort of affective or maybe somatic ways as distinct from looking at a poem and saying, oh, if I change the title and revise this line, I can publish this. Right.
2: Everything that you talk about, I'm so interested in and like have been (laughs) interested in forever. Um, And, and, and I'm just like, oh, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that. But I, I want to be considerate of the audience who's listening who have not spent yet as much time <laughs> with you as i have but okay so you're so you're it's 2018 Mm -hmm. you've you've accepted um this lectureship Mm -hmm. so actually before we talk about what was it like for you to start out writing them maybe let's go backwards just for a second and how many lectures and you know each one of these questions is actually complicated right um because I don't know if you can answer this simply, but, like, how many lectures did you end up, quote-unquote, writing? (laughs) Um, And, you know, maybe we could just say the titles. And, you know, the problem is, it's not a problem. The glory of your lectures, one Mm. of the glories of them for me, is that you have uh, subverted, recreated, reimagined, the lecture as a form so that to say oh i i I wrote this one lecture called this and it's about this is not going to describe the lectures which are experiences and in some ways cannot be like poems i think paraphrased um but um until everybody listening has actually experienced every single one of them, some of which are no longer experienceable because like live performance, they are, you know, they don't exist anymore in that form. So what are the lectures that you wrote?
0: Okay. So the ones I ultimately wrote are, uh, the first was I Killed, I Died, Banter, Self-Destruction in the Poetry Reading. That was followed by Hashtag Werewolf Goals. That was f- followed by You Better Hush, um, which is about visual poetry. And the final one is called Red, 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 Putting Down Violence in Poetry.
2: Great. And and tonight mm-hmm. you're doing, you. it's listed as Red, 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 mm-hmm. but it's going to be... A
1: little different. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And so, my other question before we go back and talk about what creating them was like um, did you ever give the same lecture twice?
0: Yeah, I ended up doing that. And there was a time when, you know, they, 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 they want you to write three to five lectures,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and they want you to give them eight to 10 times. Mm hmm. And a lot of a lot of folks, you know, take on the challenge of never delivering twice. That's what you did, right? You, uh,
2: um, no, I sort of did give a few of them more than, than once, once okay. but then they completely changed. Right,
0: right. When, that's what I'm. Yeah,
2: yeah. When I wrote them, when I edited them, and to make them into essays, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. then they sort of changed. back Back. a little
0: bit yeah Um, yeah yeah. Yeah. I mean so for me I wanted to I wanted to do five Mm -hmm. (laughs) I wanted to make five and I wanted to have 10 readings so Uh I kind of knew that there would be two Mm -hmm. in each in each one and that same little voice was in the back of my head saying but what if you did write like a different one for each one and some of that was a kind of um you know like like the like the phrase goes, just doing the most. Like I was like, I'm going to do the most, right? Yeah. And some of that was not understanding the lecture as a form that people um, have used in a very particular way, which is a, and this is, far too simplified, but, but a way that I've been thinking about it is a lecture is something that you revise publicly. Wow. That the idea is you deliver the lecture, right? Maybe there's a Q&A afterwards and people ask you questions. And that that moment is, oh my gosh, what a great question. I must revisit the lecture. It's this sort of collaborative um, redrafting. And so that that was like kind of amazing for me. Cause I I knew, you know, I knew I had professors who delivered the same lecture over time. But it didn't occur to me that the questions that a student might ask or a colleague might ask then go back and sort of like create this sort of living document in fact i would argue that i was so damn basic in my thinking that the way i thought of a lecture was as this kind of plastic object and that that was its problem that lecturing is this kind of monologuing um just block that that the listener has to contend with whereas something that would be more like how people sort of describe student-centered teachers, student-oriented teaching, where you're sort of responding and it's dialectic, dialogic. Like that was like, that's what you should be doing, right? Which, sure, like with more nuance, yeah. Mm -hmm. But what I learned was, oh, if there was a question, it wasn't like, gotcha, or it wasn't like, ugh. It was now like, oh, okay, when I give this lecture again, this lecture now includes mm-hmm. this giving of the lecture.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I also, so, so that was really great and that was encouraging. And I don't think it was just a rationale, but some of it was also a kind of like genuine exhaustion. Um, in the past few months, I've learned that I have ADHD hmm. um, and that I've had it, of course, you know, since childhood. Um, and so like, there's a way in which I have, I have worked because it works for me and all of that. But it also helps explain why some kinds of ways of working feel less um, uh, native to me, feel less Mm. like that makes that makes sense. Um, You know, so it's kind of like um, and so that's been a part like in, in many ways. I feel like the lectures were the thing that is the most concrete that I can look at and go like, oh, all right, that's that's my mind doing the thing that it does really well and not doing the thing that it doesn't do as well. Mm. Um, and that to me has been really good. Um, uh, but yeah, yes, that's been a big process.
2: Is it okay if I ask you a question about that? Um, it's it's super interesting for me to hear you say that because um, recently, like within the past year, um, several people are around our age or a little bit younger, but not children and not adolescents, um, who I really care deeply about, have actually gone through um, this process of uh, searching out a diagnosis and, or, and getting a diagnosis for ADHD in particular. And it's been really interesting to talk to them about um, that journey and like what it's revealed, ways that it's made them sort of mourn for not having had uh, kind of a name for mm. for the way their brain is attracted to certain kinds of processes mm-hmm. and and also certain kinds of um maybe maladaptive coping strategies mm. that they have built up um that maybe they wouldn't have needed to had this been like diagnosed and and been like a part of their lives earlier that the coping mechanisms that they that they uh could have come to would have been more adaptive in other ways right um what what's there what led you to like seek this out and mm-hmm. and how has it changed things for you if it has
0: the real reason why i got um why i went and got my papers was um, I was um, doing diabetic, diabetic counseling, mm-hmm. um, nutritional counseling. Um, I've had diabetes since uh, 2016. Mm-hmm. So they were asking me questions about, um, they were like, okay, so do you experience a lot of stress in your life? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they asked then the question, what do you do to get past the stress? Mm-hmm. Like what do you, how do you process the stress? and i broke down
1: mm.
0: and it's just like weeping and like it was the the diabetic counselor was she, she was great but it's like her first week on the job and so she's like oh, like, 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 she's like, oh no like, like I, I broke I, oh no and <laughs> and you know so she's like we have we have we have uh, social workers here to help you, you know, like to help you mm-hmm. she was great um but it was it was just this sort of moment of of not being able to, like, answer that question. Huh. And so um, so a f- couple of weeks later, I went to see the social worker to talk about the stress and um, uh, Dr. Jess... Was there uh, talking to me about this, and was just asking me questions. And I'm doing very much like what I'm doing. I was doing very much what, I, what I'm doing here, which is like you ask me a question, and I and 15 minutes later, <laughs> <laughs> I, I never know whether that's like good or whether I should you know see what happens if I try to limit my answers to one minute. Um, but through it through this conversation it was just like, tell me something. Have you ever been like tested for hmm. ADHD? So, I get into the car and I call Nicole. I'm like, yeah, guess what? You know, like I just went and this, you know, remember how I broke down? Yeah, yeah, okay. So I went and I talked to the doctor and she thinks I might have ADHD. And Nicole studied psychology um, and was getting her master's in school psychology the first time we lived in Minnesota. And she said to me, yeah, I've thought that since 2005. Wow. But you're not supposed to diagnose your family. Uh. So she had just been kind of quietly marshalling like resources, videos, advocacy groups, Uh. doing things that almost took for granted that that was how my mind was working. And so like building a completely different kind of partnership without me knowing Mm. It it wasn't anything I was anticipating. Um, I just, you know, I just thought that, I knew that the way I thought of things wasn't the way everybody thinks of things, but I didn't think of that as being, I didn't know that it was, um, that it was nameable. Yeah. Or um, like, you know, something that has some beautiful parts that other people experience. Mm -hmm. So, yeah.
2: Oh, my gosh. Okay. So this is totally fascinating. Let's go back, though, to what that – when you started writing the lectures, first of all, did you write them in the order that you just listed them? Mm. Did you write them discreetly one at a time? Did you write – and then think, well, this is going to go in here and this is going to go in there.
0: Yeah, so I had, I think I had two years between getting the, between being invited to write for the lecture series and the kind of premiere of my first lecture. And for the bulk of the, the, those two years, I was working on five completely different lectures
2: fascinating
0: so most of that time i was working on a completely different set of things which have no real overlap wow no real overlap i didn't write any full drafts of those things um i you know i had done some i'd done some research was gathering material um uh, I have a student, um, Tarek Dobbs, they're a fantastic poet, thinker, doing a lot of work with visual poetry as well. Um, they were doing a lot of like research gathering for me. Like I, was, I, I said, I can get a research assistant, I'll try that out. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I had these ideas, um, some of which are now being adapted for a different, um, sort of manuscript
1: mm-hmm.
0: project. Um, but these ideas were going to be, you know, I, I I remember having thought about it for a while and then I came to what the seed of it was going to be and I wrote this like really kind of breathless, excited um, email um, uh, you know, to uh, Bagley Wright <laughs> Bagley Wright Foundation um, and was just super, super excited. Yeah, like I was writing to Ellen over there. Mm -hmm. And I was like, ugh, right? Um, And this idea was going to be, if now seems like the time to say, I was going to look at discrete moments in recorded music. And by this, I mean things that may last six seconds. Wow. And so the first layer was I was going to find Five to seven of these. So I was already thinking of writing more lectures at that point. Five to seven of these things where – and they were all going to be moments in black um, musical production where something happens as a kind of a sonic phenomena that I was then going to use. Now, yes, black performance is a huge part of a couple of the lectures, but the way I was thinking about them was different here. So so, so that was kind of the first coil. So, for example, there's this moment in Jennifer Holliday's kind of, you know, the iconic original cast recording of the big moment from Dream um, um, And I'm telling you, I'm not going.
1: Hmm.
0: And she sings, I'm not waking up tomorrow morning. Uh-huh. Right? That moment, that uh-huh which is also might be ha-ha, right? And what I was thinking about that was that is a moment of profound, dramatic irony. Because the next part of the line is to find out that there's nobody there, right? So we know she's going to wake up tomorrow
1: morning, mm-hmm.
0: essentially tomorrow morning, and find out that there's nobody there. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> so that- ha ha, or uh-uh, is that Jennifer Holiday knowing what's going to happen in the play, in the musical? Is that Effie laughing at the very idea of, so it's like, ha ha, that's not going to happen.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: If it's uh-uh, is she willing something that Effie does know could be coming and is she willing that to be ridiculous because that would be very consistent with the theme i am telling you i'm not going Mm -hmm. you're the best man i've ever known right so all so all of those things was going to be like how can we talk about the dramaturgical Mm -hmm. work that's happening there and is it reasonable to talk about dramaturgy in this kind of moment as not being an external process that happens to the character by the actor or dramaturg But is it in the kind of double-mindedness that has become one of the ways we speak about, you know, black ontologies? Like, is she dramaturgically intervening in her own moment as a performer, playing a performer, like all of these things? Mm. So that's like, there was going to be like stuff like that. But this is where it fell apart because Bagley Wright said, they want us to write about a thing that has informed our practice. And this would have required time travel (laughs) because it would require me to have an observation and then I was going to have to spend a whole bunch of time sort of retroactively like inserting it
1: Mm -hmm.
0: into my practice. Mm -hmm. And I spun my wheels on the kind of the ethics of that the efficacy of that, what I hoped to accomplish by doing that, all of those things. Because that was me thinking, I need to make a massive scholarly intervention by way of my lecture series. Mm -hmm. And that's very rarely a good place for me to start with something. The idea that I was going to write something that... Was external first, and then was going to, I was going to have to take and integrate it inside of my body, inside of my mind, and quite literally, because I would be saying that this has been driving my poetics, insert it into fucking history.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: That I was going to incept. That I was going to fake news, mm. I was going to I was going to make a deep fake. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I was going to leverage it using the lives and art of other black people, to do what to build something for myself.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Now how can I, as a person who wrote an open letter, when an editor asked me to write about, you know, like, like days after uh, Chauvin murdered George Floyd, said, you're in Minnesota, you're in Minneapolis, you're on the ground, why don't you write us, write for us, you know, like, what's what you're seeing in your analysis? And my reaction to that was just so clear. I am a human being who has spent the bulk of his life thinking that my job, was to facilitate whatever somebody asked of me, that my job was to think of every invitation as an opportunity and therefore to not do it meant I did not want to benefit the people around me and the people in my extended family because why? Mm. I don't feel like it, I'm tired, fuck that. This person said, do this thing. Can you then Mm. do it? Mm. And it was just so clear to me at that moment that if I did that for that article, I was essentially saying all of my poetry, which in every book has been addressing systemic violence as it impacts a larger social context and my own personal life, that none of those books existed or were adequate. And more importantly, the entire corpus of the black traditions of writing about anti-black racism, none of that existed. And maybe if I just figured out how to just, oh, if I could just make this thing just right, maybe I could fix it. So I could not then turn around and instrumentalize Mm. these artists over some bullshit. These these artists, these moments are the moments that have stayed with me. They've brought me joy. They've haunted me. Like like these were gifts. These were gifts. And I was going to hock them, not by writing about them, although there are ways to hock them doing that. But by writing about them and the, the core of their truth, tell a massive lie. Mm. So I couldn't do that.
2: And the, the massive lie would be to kind of retroactively insert these into the history of your poetics. Yes. And can you just say that one more time? Because I think that's really profound, really complicated. And I imagine someone out there sort of being like, Oh, Doug, you're giving yourself such a hard time. Isn't this what isn't this what writers do? Isn't there a kind of atemporality to, you know, creative influence? And, you know, why why, you know, why why would that be its own act of violence?
0: Because there is a fundamental difference between going to a historical site, dusting some things off and going, oh my gosh, look at what's there. And going to a historical site with some shit in your back pocket and putting it there and saying,
1: look what's there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: The second is a fundamental lie.
1: Mm -hmm. It is a
0: Fundamental lie. And it was one that only, only, I only would have been doing this because I wanted to project something that it wasn't even being asked for. Mm -hmm. It was nothing but ego, nothing but self-advancement, nothing but a projection that was deeply rooted in not only appealing like, well, you know, you know, I earned that honorary. Mm -hmm. At my most generous, my most generous, I would say to that kind, kind listener, the most generous thing I could have said was it would have been trying to make myself not feel uncomfortable with where my actual process had been.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And the thing that I have learned is that the temporary discomfort the the moment would be far outweighed by the and I am not being melodramatic the years of living with that kind of lie mhm mhm and maybe that's not how everybody rolls and that might not have anything to do with anything about me getting my papers <laughs> i've spent my life as a writer Putting myself in the position to not appease that guy, who if you said, "Hey, have you read this?" he'd go, "Yeah," even if he didn't. That guy. Yep. But I know me well enough to know that guy. And if I let that guy run my poetry, I'm I'm screwed.
2: Right. I mean, I <laughs> I, I, I I'm. I'm also thinking about it in terms of part of my drama was about authority and for sure that comes from being a woman, being an only child, Mm. um, you know, coming out of a very patriarchal religion being in a heterosexual marriage, having only male children, um, like being having a male editor, yeah. um, f- wanting to prove myself and 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 get you know get the gold ring at the same time that I knew that my deepest, most authentic work in life was about trying you know i can 't live outside of capitalism. But can I, instead of going after this power that I think will protect me or, you know, I don't know, make me a man, yeah. um, <laughs> right. you know, yeah. uh, can, I, um, can I dismantle this within myself, the need for it, the addiction to it, the desire for it, and still speak? Um and I think, you know, when I hear you describe this this um you know, there's their audiences expect different things from you absolutely. than they do from me. Absolutely. And um fucked up things. And you know likewise. I, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think about this editor asking you to to write this piece and and then it sort of igniting you know or illuminating this realization about what you had been doing with these five you know lectures and these moments of music um uh instrumentalizing my god right which would have amongst other transgressions also put you on the stage in front of you know a white audience as a performer, as a song and dance, you know, black man who was like, you know, I think that's also where I hear the, the, the word Hawk, right? Mm -hmm, Like, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. let me give you this, this, this moment of joy. Um, Let me, let me, you know, this is what you paid for and let me take it from another black artist, give it to you fulfill my role as like an entertainer you know there's the process of the lectures of writing them and delivering them which is in and of itself so fascinating there's the product of the lecture like whatever makes it into a book or the recording of it or you know the Yale reviews you know version of it (laughs) and then there's like the rite of passage of the lecture, and I don't know yet because um, you're the first person that I've really spoken to about these lectures. But I suspect that for for each person, I I, I don't know. Uh, certainly for me, yeah. you know, yeah. there there was yeah. Yeah. how the lectures changed me, like just like really. Yeah profoundly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So you have this, this moment where you're like, I'm not going to do this. Yep. (laughs) When did you give your first lecture?
1: October
0: or maybe late September, 2020.
2: So, okay. So it's summer to then. And, and how did you how did you know, okay, I'm not doing that, but I'm going to do this? And how did you, as you were writing or, you know, getting ready for that, for, for what would be the first lecture that you gave, were there a set of like guidelines that you, or, you know, uh, like maybe almost landmarks that you were like, okay, I'm I'm not on that path that I know I need to get off of. I don't know where I'm going, but... How, how was that? And especially, I guess I'm asking, once you realized how high the stakes were for you, how did you make it okay for you to, because you knew you were going to write something.
0: Yep. So, um, yeah, I wrote five titles that felt like things I could reasonably get at and sent them to some friends. I might have written six titles actually. Sent them to some friends, and said, "I have to give. I have to give a a list of lecture. T- I, have to, I have to give a lecture. I'm starting this series of lectures, and I need to to do them. <laughs> Which one of these seems interesting? Wow! And there were votes. Uh-huh. Um, there was one that I felt would require, I had gotten, I'd gotten very comfortable saying, um, you know, another thing people have heard me say is like a kind of a distrust of metaphor,
1: Uh-huh.
0: Like a distrust of metaphor. Um, and I had one lecture that I put on that list that I was not able to, to do. I wasn't able to make that one happen. Um, but I think about it and I think about it as kind of like a living thing. And that was, uh, and, and, and the irony, you know, the, the irony um, is of course right in the title. And in, in that lecture would be called metaphor is a magical Negro factory. Wow. And so that lecture I have not written, but I've, said the title of that like <laughs> lots of places and maybe i do think that some things work better as like a quick just like Ick,
1: mm-hmm. and then
0: leave the area leave like leave the area let people cathect the idea mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: you know and and get some and this goes back to my kind of like like constant sort of feeling a need to say and i don't feel like this is a bad need i, I feel like it's an important an important self-intervention to oftentimes say when i sit down to write and revise a poem one of the first things i look at is am i using metaphor as a false equivalence am i taking metaphor and just taking this first thing like is the vehicle given a life and outside of that i've i you know come to the realization that um, so much of my work and I think why the conceptual, the lyric, and the critical intersect so much in my work is because I am less interested in showing
1: mm-hmm. than I am
0: telling. Um, and so, so, all, so, so anyway, so that's the lecture I did, not ri- I did not write. It was in the original list. And then two from that list did sort of meld together. Um, there was going to be, it was, I think it was called In the Cut. And it was uh, called, I think it was called Collage Logics and um uh you better hush wasn't called you better hush at first it was called it was um i can't remember what it was called at first but that but those were two separate ones i was going to talk about visual poetry and i was going to talk about collage separately and the only example of i wrote a version of that lecture that for that that molded those two things and like, I think my lectures were averaging about 7,000 words, mm-hmm. 7,000 to, oh, I think, I think hashtag werewolf goals, like, went beyond that pretty significantly. Um, and maybe you better hush. But I wrote an entire lecture um, for uh, you better hush. I would, I want to say a couple of weeks before I gave it. hmm and then scrapped it and then started again. Um, there were a couple of things I was able to recover. Yeah. But it was performing. It was it was speaking with a kind of a performance of authority that was not um, tongue-in-cheek ironic or strategic in the sense of like, what am I saying about authority by mm-hmm. taking this role? And I remember uh, reading it to Nicole and she was like, mm, mm-hmm. I don't know, like, 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 and I was like, OK, all right. You know, I'm like, I have time. It's <laughs> so like, like I have time. Thanks for letting me know. And I just went back and uh, I remade it. There are times while writing when I lean back from the computer and my fingers go up to my mouth. Onicophagia. Nail biting is another long term project. When the nails are nubbed, the clipped pale crescents bend or ground down, I work the skin around the cuticle. I'm thinking of a word as my teeth close in on a flap of flayed skin. Had I fangs, I could slice this frayed end right off. I'm thinking, thinking of a word as I start to gnaw, to tug the skin away. There's an instant before it starts to sting, before what's revealed is too red and wet, that I might pull and pull firmly like stripping the periosteum off a shank bone. If I do this right, I could pull the skin off in one piece, revealing in a spiral of thin ribbon the meat underneath, pulling the thin rind away in a slim, spiraling strip. I am thinking, thinking, thinking of a word when I realize what is happening. The hangnail tears off. I bite down hard on the whole distal phalanx. The crush of my blunt teeth's pressure shifts the pain from the torn skin to the whole thumb. There is so much me in my stomach, more perhaps than what I've spit out, person in person. I have told you that I have practiced at something, repeated it with an intention of preparation and inception becoming a werewolf. I do not practice reading my poems in this fashion. I read many of them as I work on them. This is generally a process, part of a process of revision. I'm readying them to be done with being written. But when I'm asked after readings whether I practice my poems, this isn't what I figure most people to mean. I think they want to know whether I rehearse the poems for reading so that I may perform them well. And this kind of practice, I do not do. Another question I'm asked is whether I write poems the way I write them because of the skills I can bring to a reading, or do I bring the skills because the poem requires them? There are things that I know I can do fairly well. Among these things, number techniques that work in a context of live performance. They may not always work in every situation, just as certain compositional or rhetorical effects may not always work in every written situation. But I've paid attention to a lexicon of performance. Sometimes you pick something up. I do not mean to be coy. I want to push myself. I always, I I shouldn't say, I also want to experience pleasure. There are things I enjoy doing when I write, and some of these lead to familiar gestures to embody, often I work against them towards a generative estrangement. I'm willing to make myself uncomfortable to serve a longer-term elusive goal. You may think now, by talking about technique and not, say, content, I am avoiding discussing catharsis, or that I have at last decided to stop talking about werewolves. No and no, for I'm going to go into catharsis. Rather, its absence what has become an exercise in werewolf practice, a briar of control and change, or release and relief. For after queries of practice and process, another question I frequently receive is about catharsis. That is, are my poems cathartic? No. Writing them. No. Reading them. No, not if the idea of catharsis includes release and relief in a relation, a logistic, one that could be described by way of a preposition. Writing and performing poems, for me, is not cathartic. Instead, these activities are a bit like tearing off a skin, then chewing it up. Recall that a werewolf's injuries carry over between forms. This, I think, is a key way to understand why writing then performing the poems does not provide relief for me. Even if the poem provided an airsat's optical demonstration, whatever wound it seemed to take on would be there in the morning, under my fresh shirt, my untorn pants, my gargled maw. And even at the point of going through changes, it can be hard to discern or detangle pain and horror. So you're busy looking at the thing and metaphor as a really performative moment in most poems. Like like the sort of thing that says, I'm doing a thing. Like I'm doing this thing. I'm now intentionally telling you something that's not true, but here it's true, Mm -hmm. right? Which is, which for a lot of folks is a valuable sort of rhetorical algorithm. It's It's a little piece of software. You kind of put, oh, oh, I see this and I see this, right? Like for some people, that's like great. But I think it is like, look over here. What I'm really mean is this, but look at this. And so if it is both, I really mean this, but look at this, then that to me can create an experience with a poem in which we are allowed to not be interacting with the poem or ourselves or we're doing this thing where we're not thinking that we're interacting with ourselves, but we are because this poem does this thing. And my interest has largely been you are reading a poem, you are interacting with with the poem, and that poem is making you interact with yourself. I am not interested in giving you a place to rest. So like if metaphor gives us a place to rest, when we're readers, if there's a figurative relationship that I trust, it's conceit. Because conceit just bodies forth the whole idea. Like a conceit is like, this is ludicrous, right? Well, let me tell you. But, but like, look, this is ludicrous, right? Not really? The whole job of this poem is to convince you of this one central, beautiful, elegant lie. <laughs> <laughs> that is not like a little thing by the roadside. It's sort of like, yeah, yeah, here it is. No, you don't know. Yeah, It's, it's putting the object at the, at the historical site. Right, no, the whole thing of this poem is I'm gonna tell you a series of lies and you are slowly going to go, Okay, yeah, yeah. And then I'm going to say, but I just lied to you. Like like that. That to me feels, and this is a word that I don't think should be the watchword of everybody's poetics. It's just one of mine. It feels more honest to me. It's why I go around. One of the things I just go around, stomping around shaking my fist at my lawn, and, but this time not just at the kids, right, but also like my grandparents, like, yeah, you get off my lawn too, is this idea of the, of the epiphanic, mm-hmm. right? Because like I think epiphanies are violent things that wreck you. They are not things that you just kind of go like, huh, I never noticed that. Mm-hmm. That's stand-up comedy, right? That's an observation, which is fantastic. Observations are great. Resonant observations are great. But I feel like epiphanies Like, wreck you. And I feel like if you have three or four bona fide epiphanies in your life, you have had a life that has been full of such introspection that, like, whoa, because that means it's something essential. You notice something essential and it has changed the way you exist in the world. Yet, the idea of epiphany. In some poetry collections, if there's 60 poems, there's supposed to be at least 50, 70 epiphanies. Yes. <laughs> and I call that insight porn, mm-hmm. right? Like, like, like. and the thing is, it's, 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 a, it's a really cozy thing because right. like the poet, right, you know, gets to feel insightful. The reader gets to feel insightful for reading the poet and everybody just kind of is like, yeah, this is, this is great. This feels good. Again.
1: I hate that kind of poetry. It doesn't give me
0: anything. Like, if you feel like you have a, a bona fide epiphany in your work, like something that I suggest is like make that the second line of the poem.
2: Right, right, and, <laughs> right. I <you laughs> and, know. And, and I, what
0: else happens now?
2: Right. I said I hate that kind of poetry, but actually, I hate. Well, I I distrust and dislike how easy it is to love that kind of poetry yes
0: yes 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 yes. and you know i'm
2: thinking of like the archaic torso of apollo (laughs) which ends with like you must change your life and that feeling you know or like james wright you know you know and i my body broke into blossom or you know i have wasted my life or you know these these last lines which which you know I was definitely taught where, like, that's what poetry can do. That's what you're going for. That's the money. It's the money shot. It's the money shot. And it's – Exactly. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's really – it's not – it's not as much as I sometimes like it. It's not what I want to do.
0: It's not what I want to do. Yeah. All right.
2: So we're talking about metaphor. We're talking about the way in which, you know, metaphor can hold within it you know, all of this potential uh, power and violence and inauthenticity and maybe authenticity too, Mm -hmm. you know, oh yes, authenticity too. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm thinking about when you feel that metaphor comes, uh, when you feel like the poet is trying to, so hard to say something and the language does not exist. And so the most authentic way to describe the feeling, the color, the sensation, the idea the is with metaphor because we don't have the words.
0: Yes, 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 yes. Can I just briefly? Yeah, please. That, and I think that, oh my gosh, this is so, because I th- I think that the way you just said it, it's like, metaphor is i don't i don't want to make it this simple because this is yet another metaphor right and my problem with metaphor is that <laughs> yes. it's like you got to take it to this far as conclusion right but if metaphor is the last resort yes then why do we not believe we have a poem until we have metaphor yes and so therefore i've heard people say that poem's job is to articulate the un that a poem's job is to be able to articulate the inarticulable and i don't think that's true
1: mm-hmm.
0: I, I feel like like you know sometimes i feel like a language apologist i recognize there's a thing called the ineffable mm-hmm. but if you think that you've reached the limit after five or ten minutes you're like, eh, okay yeah no, like like that to me i'm like no i'm like this is our sh- like this is our thing like like Musicians have their tools. You know, painters have their tools. Like, this is our thing. Like, close as, like, the default. Right. Like, out the gate. Like, yeah, yeah, it's close. Like, that to me is like, ah, it makes me go like, no, we're we're, we're, like – we're like not living up to our promise. Sometimes
2: I just have like a, a name come into my mind mm-hmm. and then I think, why is uh, Lucille Clifton? Uh, yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah. there you feel that when there is metaphor oh. and there isn't a lot of metaphor, oh. it is a last resort. It is. And that she is able to say without metaphor mm-hmm. some really hard things.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: it is possible to do that. And it it sort of reveals the extent to which so much metaphor and figurative language and poetry really feels like, and here we're getting to my question, showmanship, you know, performativity. I want to ask you simultaneously somehow, Mm -hmm. what is the form of performance? What is, why? So and I'm talking about this with my students. I'm trying so hard. They're, some of them are right with me and some of them are like what's happening?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: so we use the word performative mm-hmm. and it has a real negative connotation. It often means and you used it this way just now um inauthentic. Right. Like it's performative because it's not it's not it's not real. It's right. not genuine. But at the same time, I I've been thinking so much in large part because of your lectures, which are performances, about something so obvious, which is like, is poetry on the page a performance of poetry in the ear? Mm. Um, Is it – like what I've asked the students, when you read a poem on the page – do you hear it do you see it poetry oral poetry predated written poetry for uh, blah, yeah. yeah it it is not the case as we've been sort of taught to believe yeah. that you know the written is like the real the right and then there's all this cultural shit around performance and mm-hmm. um entertainment mm-hmm. and you know like I came up um at a time where you know the um the correct you know the poetry voice right right right, know, right right, um, right, and like uh, the prize-winning poets were you know and I, I was a white person who was mumbling and <laughs> g- being like Oh, uh do, do I have time for one more? <laughs> you know, like did you not know that you were reading tonight? It was like it it was like as if a poetry reading was an imposition mm-hmm. on this poet's time mm-hmm. because the genuine act of poetry was mm-hmm. done in private to no one yep. for nothing yep. for no one yep. um and but this was something that poets from time to time had to do. They had to come down from Mount Olympus, you know, to the people and give them the poetry. And so, and if you um, if you did not uh, fulfill that role. If you were performative, mm-hmm. you were, and I've been accused of this, you know, um, pandering. Yeah, you were yeah. pandering to the audience. You know, you were, um, y- you know, you or, or, or people would say, and I've seen this so many times, you know, a poetry reading where there are people of color reading and mm-hmm. white people reading and then white people in the audience go up to the poet of color and say – you have such a great reading TV style. Or your rhythm. Your ri- Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, and so there, it's it. it, it you know, it's this. It, it just gets so complicated yeah. about yeah. where. But I want to reclaim mm-hmm. performance mm-hmm. as a form. Mm-hmm. Like I, I gave my students last week, the two weeks ago, the assignment was. You must come in and perform a poem. And a few people did something that would be considered sort of like spoken word, performance poetry, but a lot of people did something really different. Mm. One person brought in audio of a woman singing um, in what we later learned was Swahili, Uh uh and the student began to sing along with the recording. Mm -hmm. We only learn the context later, Mm -hmm. that it's his mother, Mm -hmm. that this is a prayer, that, you know, and and all of this stuff came out about audience, about, I had a student who Turned his computer to me as we were starting the class. I said, can you go first? And, you know, here's the performance space. Please go up. And he he turned his computer to me and he had written, can I use you in my performance? Don't say anything out loud. And I nodded. Mm -hmm. And he said, don't let up on me. And I had no idea what was going to happen. And so I was confused. And I said, okay, let's start. You know, can you go up to the front? And he said, I would prefer not. And I said, and then I got it. And I said... Well, I you can do it from there, but I'd really want you to go up there. And this got to the point where other students in the class were saying, "You can sit here. You can please, My. you know, what is the big deal?" Like every and then Ooh. finally Ooh. a student uh and people were shifting in their seats. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And um and then finally one student said, "Oh, I get it. This is the performance." Yeah. And we talked about like is what makes something a performance? Is it that you engender emotion in the audience? Because this sure did. Yeah. This, yeah. Le- the, and, and it was very specific to this audience, this setting, this moment. It could never be repeated. No, no,
0: no, no. Um, yeah. It was
2: collaborative. Yeah. We, you know, we <laughs> talked about <laughs> that. Yeah. Um, you know and, and 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 then the next week last week i said bring in a poem that you cannot read out loud you know mm, totally mm, from mm. from you um <laughs> and performative typography and thinking yeah. about that and that has led to uh, uh, unbelievable unbelievable work and conversation about work and the the conversation that we've had both weeks has been the conversation that I want to have about poems on the page, but we somehow cannot get to. Nobody's saying, nobody's saying you didn't really earn that. Right, right, right. No one's saying that. Right, right. They're saying, wow. I felt like I was gonna throw up. I I was so scared. Yeah. Or yeah. I thought that was so funny. Or how did you? How did you decide to go to that? You know, or, or, or like, okay, I know you're wearing a mask because you have to right. in the classroom, but you, you performed this poem about sort of sexual uh, harassment on the street and I just wanted to see your face. And Ooh, and this was yeah. so interesting to yeah. me to think about how this experience would have been different with and without the mask. Right. Or right, right. with and without a microphone. Or, you know, I pictured you giving this performance in a room full of people with a spotlight on you. Mm. Like that's what I that's mm-hmm, what mm-hmm, I pictured. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes people say like I had a whole image of what you know it, it, it's just it's just been amazing so I okay so sorry this is no, no, this no. is why the question is so hard because I feel like this is you are the person given the it, it's not just that your work is interdisciplinary it's that in terms of the like oh yeah, sometimes there's music and sometimes there's visuals and and you're all so often collaborating. It's going back to, uh, I don't remember now if Nicole said this to you or if you said this in response um, to something that, that, to Nicole being like, I'm not sure about that. But this idea of what am I saying about authority by taking this role? The interdisciplinarity of it—is that even a word? I yes. Guess so. yeah, okay. Yeah. Good. Um, is the thing—it's—it's—it's it's, it's almost the same way that we're talking about like w- metaphor as a last resort or metaphor as absolutely unavoidable and necessary to get closer to do to do the work and okay I'm so sorry I'm like just talking 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 but it also makes me think about um, you know I've been thinking so much about private and public and secrets and Audience and awareness of audience, expectation of audience, the cultural norms around that, you know whether poetry is nonfiction right, right, whether, right, right, you know yeah, w- whether whether poetry can actually enact or reenact violence, what do we mean by that? Right, right? why do we need ethics for 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 all these things yeah, yeah, and so I think we're kind of so fucked up because We think performativity is inauthentic and we're searching for some kind of like performance that's like- That's not a performance. That's not a performance and that pretends that, right, that's pure and that pretends like, it's like the difference between an actor getting naked on stage Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
2: and-
0: Looking in somebody's window.
2: Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, show, don't tell takes on a really different valence when you're thinking about what you're supposed to be doing is looking in somebody's fucking window, doesn't it? <laughs>
1: so
2: so where, what is the form of performance mm. and where does the poem live? I don't, I keep mm-hmm. using that mm-hmm. because, mm-hmm. or where is the poem, like where... What is the performance Mm -hmm. of the poem?
0: Got it, got it. (laughs) Okay, so when I say performative, one of the ways I mean it is something that draws attention to the fact that it's a performance. Now, I am inclined to think that most people walking around in the world, are performing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That performance can range anywhere from that performance can range anywhere from uh, I'm feeling good, I'm really happy. How you doing? Huh? To um, confidence when you're not confident. To I'm not in the mood to talk to anybody today, but I'm going to talk to people. To, I look good. Mm-hmm. To, please don't hurt me. I'm, fa- I, I'm, I'm just a person in this space. I don't want to hurt anybody. I just, don't you see that I'm harmless?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: All of those are performances.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Going to a movie with a partner, and it's a movie you don't want to see, you can spend the whole time making that partner know, I don't want to see this. I don't want to see this. I don't want to see this. We don't call that person honest. We call that person an asshole. Yeah. Right? So, like, all those are performances. So, I don't think of fake as bad. Something I tell my, my students all the time, poetry's fake. It's fake. And the example I always use is this. Like, you're writing, you're presenting a version of yourself. Like, you're thinking of this, but you're thinking of other things. You're, there's so many things you're not saying. All of that now is like, let me do something with this to make it so you can interface with it. That's called performance. Now, my whole reason I started calling those, those, uh, the, the, the poems that go all over the page performative typography is it's a Trojan horse. It allows me to go into rooms in front of readers generally, lots of readers, and say, yeah, I call it performative typography, but that's just because it's drawing your attention to the fact that the type is happening. Every poem is performative. Mm -hmm. If it's all left aligned Mm -hmm. and the lines are basically even, it tells you, oh, this this is about how much air it takes to read each line. Because we are trained to read and that reading is culturally contingent right? It's not just like, it's not organic to humanity that you start on the left side of something and you go all the way across and then you go back to the left side and then you go all the way across. That's not organic. Mm -hmm. It's just a way. It's a convention. So my thinking about this is anytime we look at anything, there's like this nanosecond, depending upon your, your literacy, right? Your, your literacy in the sense of type of typographic word, that where you kind of go like, oh shit, what do I do? Oh yeah, I remember your training, got it. Mm-hmm. And you just do it,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? Mm-hmm. So much so that if somebody did something where it was left to right and then the next line down was right to left, we'd be like, wait, what's, what's happening? What's ha- Oh, okay, then maybe we'd figure it out and then we'd go like, okay, that's what I do with this. But every text that we read, we ask it first. What do I do? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. you're, you're consistent. When I put shit all over a page, that just reminds you, oh, I have decisions to make. Mm-hmm. I, I have to choose what I'm doing. And what I've tried to do in my work is make it so that that decision is a legitimate like decision. I've had to try to write in such a way that it does whatever it's going to do. I think if we paid attention to what we are Performing What we're saying about ourselves and our relationship to the world when we make certain decisions about how we behave, when we're around other people, when we're alone, I think we would do generally a better job of recognizing when we're being selfish, when we're being afraid, when we're trying to be open, when we're being cruel. And if we can see that about ourselves, we might be less apt to accuse other people of doing things. We might be able to start first from the possibility of self-transformation where that is what needs to happen. But I think performance is what we have.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think performance is it's, it's, its what we have as a way of making ourselves legible or illegible to other people. It is the way that we begin a process of not just understanding the world, but building the world around us, that space that we're sharing. And I think that if we pay attention to the fact that our performances are not a base deception, they're gifts, then maybe, maybe we could be in the world more generously with each other when it counts.
2: I might be having one of the two or three epiphanies <laughs> allotted to me in my life because I've been saying something to people in my classes for sure and other people, and I wasn't sure I really believed it, mm. but now I am. I, I, I've been asking my students, is – the idea of an authentic self—a construct of white
1: supremacy—and
2: hmm. I think it is, and I think it's, I think that it's a myth, and it's a myth that definitely I was raised with. This idea, and you can see it enacted, and it, and 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 this is this this idea not only that. You are entitled to do anything you want. But actually you have no choice in the matter because you have an authentic self and it's unchangeable. Whereas people who are not cis, white, straight men (laughs) have always had, well, let let me not conflate everything together. Right, right, right. I think that, um, first of all, in my experience as a cis woman, the great sort of, um, as a white person, I was not trained to code switch. Um, I was sort of trained to see that as, you know, uh, instead of, Being a decent person and treating other people um, the way that, you know, would be kind and loving, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. that was an accommodation of gender. Right. right, And I should watch out for that. Right, right. Right? If I wanted to be a strong, independent woman, I should watch out for that. Right, right. Um, Oh, wow.
1: That's wild. Okay.
2: Okay. Okay. And whereas and and so I think that there that I saw this in a way as 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 re establishing this myth of the authentic self. Mm-hmm. Like everyone has an authentic self, but only some people have the power to be in their authentic self, right. and everyone else is so worried about getting killed <laughs>
1: right, right, that they right.
2: have to act differently with different people. Absolutely. And that that performativity or code switching or you know a, a understanding of everything as a performance, a performance of self and that not being bad, really, if you had the power, you wouldn't right. do that. Right? Right. right. And right. and that's where I think, you know, it's just taken me a really long time to see how uh, I mean, I think it. I think it's white supremacy mixed with, with and inexorably part of capitalism too, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. this obsession with like what's genuine, right. what's a fake, you know. And and then as poets, we get into this, you know, because we make things that are reproducible, right? Right. We have a we have the burden of trying to create originality. You know, mm-hmm. so that we participate in this authenticity, genuineness, realness versus fakeness. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. as cis people, we have, you know, a, a an anxiety around the idea that gender is a performance.
1: Right. Because
2: right. we have the real one. Right, exactly.
0: <laughs> I'm not performing anything. This is just... What it is, right? right?
2: Other people yeah. might be performing their right. gender, but not me. Not me. You know? No, no, no. no. And and <laughs> wow, Jeez. wow, wow, Douglas. I mean, yeah, just getting over that, just letting go. I think maybe that's why the students are in 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 perf- in the invitation to perform, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they're able to engage a part of their creativity, receive their peers' art Mm -hmm. in a way that does not, um, it has led to, the kind of generosity and specificity and engagement and risk Mm -hmm. and, um, visibility Mm -hmm. and a kind of honesty about the, the artifice Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm,
2: of mm -hmm. made work Mm -hmm. without a, a kind of, um, oh, well, it's not good because it's artificial. Right, Right. Right. Right.
1: Exactly.
0: Why did this take me until almost 50 to get here? Because, because, because you're good at, at, at personing. Uh-huh. I think that if we're aware, as aware as it requires you to be to recognize it when you're doing it and to understand why you did it, I think if we're aware of the performances that we're giving as a part of a species of creature's that has come to a point where we are using abstractions and symbols and things like that to facilitate oftentimes our our collaboration. I think that it is not unreasonable (laughs) to insist that we recognize that these behaviors are at some levels, some real levels, performances. Mm-hmm. That they are motivated like we expect our actors to be.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And that what we should spend more time understanding is what motivates our action. I don't say a lot of shoulds, but that's, I, I feel like that's a should I would argue for. Like I would, I, I might get into an argument over a lot of, I might eschew arguments over a lot of things, but I do think that there might be that should that knowing why you're doing this thing. Even if you don't tell another single soul, that's not a part of the calculus.
1: Mm-hmm. But
0: how does knowing what you're doing impact your decisions? How does that make it stop being just about, well, this person doesn't like it when I do this, so my Like, nah. Like, why do you want to do this to that person? Why? And if you would be reluctant to say that why, because it might make you look bad, got to think about it. Understanding that, like I remember, I think from from one of your podcasts, when you were talking to one of your sons about what it means to be a white male
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and you are asking and You know, the way you framed it it was like a conversation. But at some level there is like, no, you have to understand what role has been carved out and who it was carved out of to give Mm -hmm, you this. mm -hmm. So your decisions have to have to have to accept that fact. Because if they do, if they ignore that fact, if they pretend to not know then they are able to lie to themselves and say that they are being who they are and the way it should be yeah and that to me is the kind of moment that i think we can have and i don't think it's i don't think it's harmful i don't think it I don't think it makes you indecisive i think it means that you're able to go oh my gosh i'm doing that thing again mhm and I'm doing it because of this, I, I want to stop it. I mean, one of the things that Nicole and I said to each other really early in our relationship, I mean, we've been together since 1992, mm. one day we were just sitting around, and I said, you know when we argue? Sometimes I do this, because I know that'll make you do this, and then we're not talking about, whatever it was we started off. Mm -hmm. We essentially showed each other our trick books. (laughs) And it has made it possible for us to be together without feeling like we're always accommodating the other one because that can be corrosive. Right. But to feel like, if I say this, it's just because I don't want to deal with what it is she's bringing to my attention. That's That's not how a relationship works Mm -hmm. and you're not always going to stop yourself. But at least you can live in a world where you're not gaslighting others or yourself. And I think that that looking at performance as not bad, which isn't to say there aren't bad performances. (laughs) Sure. That would be redundant if... You know, mm-hmm. if, if performance just equal bad.
1: Mm-hmm. But to
0: look at it as a kind of a gift or a kind of a way to be in the world and recognize that we can learn so much about ourselves if we know why we're doing this thing. And maybe that prepares us to talk to other people about why they're doing a thing.
1: Damn.
2: I feel like this is the most um, metaphysical and practical simultaneous moment that I've had on the podcast. Like where we're, we're way up here and we're way down here mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. the same time. Mm-hmm. And mm. I, I'm sort of just sitting in awe of what's at stake. With what you're talking about, you know, uh, a marriage, a relationship, a partnership—that's huge. Being able to to be with someone um, across time, across life experience, and basically. That's both not and is a metaphor, of course, (laughs) for all human relationships and Mm -hmm. human and non-human relationships. Like how do we, how do we perform not killing the planet? Like (laughs) how do we, you know, how, how do we recognize that these are choices that, 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 that there's, I don't again like the 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 fantasy or the myth of an authentic self is to say oh it's in our nature right, right to right, rape right. and pillage and. Uh, overuse and right. you know and and we can try to make laws and we can try to get enough police mm-hmm. to stop us mm-hmm. from acting on our nature our mm-hmm. one true mm-hmm.
0: nature
1: mhm
2: mm-hmm. <sighs> How are we going to end this? How are we going to end this? I
0: mean – When the tape runs out
2: when tape runs out of I, memory. I know. That's the problem <laughs> I that I'm plugged in because right. my batteries won't run out. Otherwise, they would have run out um, 15 minutes ago actually.
0: Oh, you caught I, it right then.
2: I heard a beep. Oh. Um, and, but because I'm plugged in. So, okay. So, look, convention – Would call for me to say, and how have the lectures changed your life or what are you doing next, which are actually questions I really want to know the answer to. I also want to say, um, you know, this has been more and deeper than I ever could have hoped for. And you are giving a performance of a performance tonight, um, which I'm so thrilled I'm going to be um, in the audience for. And between now and then, I assume you need to do stuff, including doing nothing or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, so let's come to an end Mm -hmm. because it's been long. Um, (laughs) uh, Even though I want to like, just go on talking about this forever. Um, Is there a question that you wanted me to ask you? Is there, is there something, you know, if, if you even, I mean, you are one of the most, um, diligent, commonplace listeners. Um, diligent isn't the right word. It's just the first one that came to mind. Um, I, were, were there ever moments where you like imagined, oh, and you know, if, when I'm on commonplace, I hope I get to talk about this.
0: I mean, I'll say Rachel, like, first of all, you know, we talked about spending time with each other, mm-hmm. like, you know, and be- before actually spending time with each other, yeah. um, like three dimensionally. And I want to thank you for creating a space in which you make present the things that some of us are doing at two in the morning Mm -hmm. between feeding kids, between caring for adults, um, between several jobs. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And what you do is you, You make it so that that work, we get to see it in another person's life, how it affects them in their life. Mm -hmm. There are some people who can demonstrate for us that those decisions will be scrutinized with loving care. Right, so we can kind of see, you know, the sort of life of the mind. You're not alone. There's somebody's reading this, and, and it does matter. One of the things I love about commonplace is that you're like, yeah, I can do, I can do that. <laughs> um, and that's valuable and it's wonderful. But there's this riskier thing that I feel like you do, which is like, this is how it's hitting my life on this date that I do this recording. Mm-hmm. And that's like, like what the result of that is changes, but that is consistent, right? Yep. Like when you walk in, it's like, all right, this is where I am right now. So I'm going to behave in that way while still being alert to the fact that there's going to be a reader, a listener Who's going to pick this up? And so there's this remarkable tension Mm. in that. And I spent a lot of time listening and hearing writers in those, in those, in those circumstances come to just some really remarkable things or present really remarkable things, um, that feel like they are for your body and your mind and all of those things. Um, this is a both and Mm -hmm. like, like a world where there are like podcast hosts, (laughs) conversationalists, (laughs) and some will do this thing. And then some will do this thing is a, I am so happy for that world Mm -hmm. and for finding it and for being able to be in it. So I didn't start with any, expectations of how this would go
1: Mm.
0: um and i can't think of a of a better way for it to have gone Mm. Um,
2: this has been episode 99 of commonplace with douglas kearney i'm your host rachel zucker this episode was produced by me valentine connedy langa chinyoka and christine larusso Many thanks to Wave Books, Noemi Press, Fence Books, Red Hen Books, Ellen Welker and the Bagley Wright Lecture Series on Poetry, The Ace Hotel Brooklyn, Cave Canum, and Baum. Many thanks to our commonplace patrons, to everyone who sends us messages of support and encouragement, and to you, listener. Thank you for listening. I will send you off now with a last excerpt from Douglas Kearney's performance of Red, 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 Depictions of Violence and Poetry at the Ace Hotel, Brooklyn, with Val
0: Uh, mm. (sighs) Genti. 24. Titles or scenes having to do with law enforcement or law-enforcing officers. I promise if you hear of me dead anywhere near a cop, then that cop killed me. It may be off color, noting how much of my tradition's content, black poets' work, would be on these editors' killing room floor. Arson, the use of firearms, theft. Robbery, safe cracking and dynamiting of trains, mines, buildings, etc. Brutality and possible gruesomeness. Techniques of committing murder by whatever method. Actual hangings or electrocutions as legal punishment for crime. Sympathy for criminals. Apparent cruelty to children and animals. Branding of people or animals. The sale of women or of a woman selling her virtue. Rape or attempted rape. Surgical operations. The use of drugs. Titles or scenes having to do with law enforcement or law enforcing or officers. Poetry about the peculiar institution, i.e. slavery, addressed with special care, could tick off 12 of these things.